Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. We're recording this episode at the end of the second week of November, having survived one of the most contentious presidential elections in American history. While our norms are violated this campaign season, either as a result of the candidates or the coronavirus, some familiar forms of engagement endured, such as the lawn sign, the bumper sticker, and, of course, the campaign button. Here to talk with us about campaign buttons, Chicago's role in making these buttons and many other kind of buttons, as well as their new book, Button Power, our Busy Beaver Button Company founder and master button maker, Kristen Carter, and Hake's Auctions founder and legendary button collector, Ted Hake. Uh, Kristen and Ted, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Hi, how are you doing? We're doing well. Thank you so much. Uh, so my first question actually has to do with a political campaign button, uh, because by a happy accident, I learned through reading your book uh, that the rarest and most valuable pinback political campaign button actually dates from an election a hundred years ago, the 1920 presidential election, and it's not a button connected to the victor in that contest, uh, Ohio Senator Republican Warren G. Harding, but rather his Democratic rival, uh, also an Ohioan, Governor James M. Cox, who had a, a running mate that probably a lot of us know, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But what, what makes this particular button from 1920 so rare and invaluable? Well, it really comes down to the design and the size. Um, the uh, collectors of campaign items uh, like to have pictures of both candidates on a single item. We even have a, a, a Latin word for it called jugate, J-U-G-A-T-E. And on a button, that's particularly desirable because collectors have deemed it so. But the Democrats uh, in 1920 were a little short on funds, and they, they just simply didn't order any of these double-picture jugates, or if they did, they ordered them in such a small quantity, and so many have been lost that Nowadays, there are about 50 known buttons of about eight different varieties, but uh, the one they want is both pictures on uh, on one button in any size, uh, from uh, oh five eighth inch ones up to the uh, the holy grail being one and a quarter inches in diameter. Oh wow! And do you think having a a recognizable figure like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, granted he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy at the time, but does that add to the value, or is it more just the, the rarity of, of, of the button that's really kind of determining its price. Yes, the rarity of your form, really. Uh, mm -hmm. There are certainly plenty of FDR collectors, uh, uh, and, and this is one among, among his earliest buttons. His early buttons go back to when he was running for state offices in New York. But, uh, yeah, it could be, uh, you know, uh, it, it's really the myth that there's about three of these known in the inch and a quarter size. 
mythical, I should say, not myth. They do exist, but none of them have ever been to auction. And uh, if we're one to come to auction, I think we would be in the $100,000 plus range. $100,000? So is this is this the type of thing where a button will appear kind of like in an attic, you know, and people are cleaning out? How often are... Maybe not, maybe not this in particular, but how often are kind of more rare buttons uh, appear on the market? They do pop up. Uh, years and years ago, I was on a show called uh, Wanted uh, Something About Rewards. Stacey Keach was the host. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, actually, I actually did a segment on the, seven, uh, the James Cox uh, and Roosevelt Jewgate. Lo and behold, down in Texas, a man found one. Oh, wow. He found the most common one, and it was tanned from being exposed to some moisture during its lifetime. But still, my offer at that time was 10000 for a nice one, and I think he ended up at five. Mm-hmm. Is not being so nice. <laughs> but we, we sold it, and, and we sold it at a profit. I don't even remember the price. We did just set a record uh, of 38000 for a similar one, but of a smaller size. So an inch and a quarter, again, is the Holy Grail. Both are pictures on the front. Uh, Cox and Roosevelt, that's the one you want to find. Huh. So it's almost like the, the Honus Wagner of political campaign buttons in some ways. It is indeed, but, yeah. but at a fraction of the price, mm-hmm. really. <laughs> more, more rare, if there is right. such a thing. Someone has told me there's only one form of rare, and that's it, rare. There's no <laughs> rare, there's no rarest. Either rare or it isn't. Huh. And James Jugate is, in fact, much, much rare. It's Superman number one, Honus Wagner, you go down the line, and this, this button would be a bargain on the market at 100000 plus. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, I have a, a modest collection of, of campaign uh, buttons. Uh, I do not have that one, but I do have, uh, actually, in my collection, a uh, Warren G. Harding Calvin Coolidge button. And, you know, in preparing for this interview, I was surprised to learn that it was actually produced by a company here in Chicago, which, you know, I pride myself on on knowing a lot about the city's history. But I wasn't aware that this thing in my own collection had actually been made here. Kristen, do you want to talk about some of the the companies that were button manufacturers here? Yeah, what company was your button made? Oh, it was the one Lynch, J.J. Lynch. Okay, J.O. Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, Chicago was a very buttony city. Like, um, so many of the great manufacturers, like, while Whitehead Co., who invented the button, it's from Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, um, like, the biggest one is Parisian Novelty. And uh, the building is still down on Western and 35th. I mean, mm-hmm. their second building, their, their last building. Um, it's beautiful. Like over the door, it has these tiles that say Western Parisian, or um, let's say Parisian Novelty Company. Okay. So Parisian, and their payday was like Little Orphan Annie, Babe Ruth, Red Cross. Am I missing anything, Ted? No, they have a very nice tradition going back to actually about 1905. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. You know, another big boy is certainly Green Duck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Green Duck. They they were like known for you know making litho buttons, which means it's like printed straight on the metal, mm-hmm. and um, and usually there's less detail there's less detail in those that type of printing. So, um, but that Green Duck had a couple of locations. I think one was near Fullerton and 
Ashland and one was like the 1700 block of North Avenue. Okay. But I just learned, I was interviewing a guy who um, had a button company here in Chicago a few weeks ago, and he said that when when uh, people would call Green Duck, the reception, for that reception would say, Green Duck, quack, quack. Oh, nice. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, do you want to tell us what the origin of the name is? Because I thought I found that fascinating when... Actually, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm sure I read it once, but it's not coming to me. What? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, they bought J. L. Lynch, right? Right. Well, apparently, uh, right. you know, the company was founded in 1906, and it was founded by two gentlemen, uh, George C. Greenberg and Harvey mm -hmm. Duxhazel. Um <laughs> and so they combined their two names to get Green Duck, which I guess originally was one word, but then people started referring to it and spelling it as two words, and thus it became the, the Green Duck Mental Stamping Company. And I learned that actually through the uh, Busy Beaver Button Museum, um, <laughs> which unfortunately I, we can't visit except virtually in this moment, um, but we look forward to, to getting back there. Um, but one thing I also... That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that I also learned about Green Duck is that, you know, in addition to buttons, they made these things called, like, metal crickets do you want to describe what those would be well, there's a little noise maker yeah that would be like fobs that are like hanging from yeah yeah i don't know where the cricket came from ted do you know just probably something that made noise and it was a way to engage with the button you know and yeah. to, uh, engage with others it just started but, out as a noise making novelty uh, or you know in the musical instrument genre i suppose mm -hmm. but the uh the interesting part is that Whitehead and Hogue was the first to adapt it to advertising purposes. Mm -hmm. So they figured out a way to put celluloid over a piece of spring steel, and you still had your cricket, but now you had your written advertising on the celluloid top of it. Huh. Or they would suspend them from buttons, <laughs> and you get a button and a cricket all all in the you know, all in one unit. <laughs> so they found Whitehead and Hogue claimed five thousand specialties. Uh, we, Kristen and I have never counted them, but we're, we must be around a couple of thousand anyway that we know about in terms of variety. So, I mean, based on yeah. you know you, what you just said, I mean, the so the modern button as we know it, the sort of pinback button, really starts in New Jersey with Whitehead and Hogue in uh, you know the mid 1890s, but by the early 1900 uh, or even by the late 19th century, if you're taking the Parisian Novelty Company. As an example, it seems like the manufacturing of buttons is really kind of spread across the country, and they've really kind of, you know, increased significantly in popularity. I mean, does this seem valid to you? I mean, did the industry kind of take off pretty quickly once it came into being? Yeah, I mean, Brayhead and Hogue had every reason for everybody to wear use buttons for every reason, you know, because they wanted. Um, uh, you know, they wanted to make money. So, uh, but there are a lot of companies around, because, you know, it was really special to own something like a printed image back, you know, when buttons were invented in 1896. So, um, you know, other manufacturers, well, White, while Whitehead Hope did have offices all over the place, um, other manufacturers were kind of going around, like, making different pens in the back, or fasteners at least, um, so that they could get around the um, patent. Mm -hmm. But, um, and Ted, I mean, this might be a good time to talk about that Fort Wayne. For some reason, 
there's a doctor's group who had a gathering in Fort Wayne. Hmm. And uh, that's our earliest dated button. Really? In the book. Yeah. May, um, May 28, 1996. Uh, we'd um, love to find something earlier, but we've been looking hard. So a bunch of doctors yeah. in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, and that was before the final kind of patent, right, uh, that established mm -hmm. kind of the modern button. So that was just something exactly. like, how would how would they have done And this is all happening over in New Jersey. Was it just that this is like the business community and people are talking to each other? Or do you have any speculation? We've I think it really takes some time to get a patent, yeah, you know, in the early 1900s, there's a magazine called The Novelty News where companies like White and Hogue, Head and Hogue could advertise their advertising specialties. But White and Hogue had, had predecessors. Uh, they both worked for different firms, uh, involved in the paper and twine and, and eventually in the 1890s, uh, White and Hogue joined together in a, in a ribbon badge making company. Mm -hmm. So we must have been promoting and, uh, Somehow this Fort Wayne group figured out that the button was now available, and, and uh, they've got the earliest dated button we know about. It beats both of the uh, political conventions, you know, mm -hmm. except by a few weeks in the case of Republicans. And to, to connect uh, it back to uh, politics would be outside the, the Fort Wayne area that we, uh, was that, uh, Former Vice President Dan Quayle would ha hail from. Um, very strong. That was a very strong <laughs> transition. It's <laughs> <laughs> getting back to a, a question because we're talking. So far, we've been talking about the earliest uh, pinback buttons, which generally, when people think of, of buttons, whether they're campaign buttons or connected to bands or, or what have you, that's the kind of style we're talking about. But uh, Kristen and Ted, the actual idea of wearing buttons, and, and particularly for political purposes, I mean, that predates. The, the 1890s, and there are earlier examples, correct, from, say, campaigns in the 1840s and 1860s, or even earlier to, I mean, you could make an argument that there's even like a sort of proto-button for George Washington, but do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about, like, what distinguished those earlier buttons from the kind of, I guess, the modern button, the pinback that emerges in the 1890s? Yeah. This is Ted's question. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, as a uh, material object, uh, pinback button collectors sort of claim the George Washington inaugural button as our ancestor. Uh, he took the oath uh, in New York City in 1789, and he wore brass buttons on his uniform. And somehow that inspired uh, colonialists up and down the eastern seaboard to create their own George Washington inaugural buttons. Uh, and they come, uh, oh, in dozens of varieties. They're all fairly scarce. Uh, but it was a clothing button. But anyway, by, uh, it didn't take us long to end up being a two-party system. And when that happened in 1824, let's say, there was a reason to promote your guy. So Andrew Jackson shows up on these little brass tokens that had holes in them, and they would be tied to the coat lapel. And one thing led to another. About 1840, they started putting pins on them with pictures of uh, William Henry Harrison, very hmm. mythical log cabin birthplace. <laughs> and by the 1860s, you get the photography with Abraham Lincoln on a fair type. And then lo and behold, Lloyd uh, comes along and Whitehead Hope figures out how to make a pinback button in 1896. Hmm. It's an interesting genealogy. And... Presumably, I mean, some of those ones, like the, the Washington one, 
uh, would be more valuable than the the Cox button from 1920? Or well, you know, world is uh, you know three things: supply, demand, and condition. Mm -hmm. And value is determined by those three things. Uh, when you get down to it, there's more demand for a Cox cruise around G8 than there is a George Washington button. And in fact, there are many fewer of them. So, so the Cox screws about buttons on at least two counts. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the, the book, Button Power, it's got so much wonderful information in it, so many just wonderful examples of, of different kinds of buttons um, and, and, and pinback buttons and all sorts of different areas of focus and, and, and so on. I mean, how did you guys come about creating this book and, and, and what's, what inspired it? Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, I mean... Really, I started working on this book 10 years ago or mm -hmm. more than that now. And, um, you know, I was, you know, starting at the Button Museum and I had definitely been inspired by Ted's book from 1986 called Collectible Pinback Buttons, which is a collector's book guide. And, um, so, uh, so, you know, I became friends with Ted, you know, just by email, just asking questions and all that stuff. And then we finally became friends in real life where we went to, like, some APIC shows together and stuff like American Political Item Collectors Group. But, yeah, so as I was doing all the research for the Button Museum, I'm like, ah, oh, there's, there's definitely a book in here because it's, you know, buttons show history very mm -hmm. broadly and very, and if you do research very deeply. And also, even if you don't do research, because it captures moments that didn't really make at least, like, my history lesson, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so yeah, and as I was just, I decided that a book needed to be made, and then I was like, oh, shoot, I guess since I think this, it's got to be me. <laughs> and then uh, I was asking Ted so many questions, and I was like, would you want to, like, maybe four or five years into it, I was like, would you want to uh, write this book with me? And lo and behold, Ted, had been wanting to do a book like this that was like a design book as opposed to like a collector's book. So mm -hmm. we've been working on it, you know, we worked on it for, you know, five years at least. And the way we chose, because then I've talked about, I don't know, tens of thousands of yeah. buttons probably, you know, at least, <laughs> at least 10,000. But, um, so we kind of came in knowing some buttons that we wanted, but we really like, we really talked about a lot of individual buttons and if it should make it and if it shouldn't. And um, we collected based on how well it told the story of its time, you know, like how well it reflected the time it came out of, and then also beauty. So we just, um, just you know, if it was, yeah, I don't know how many times Ted and I were like in his office, like, oh, my God, that's a beautiful button, you know. Like, <laughs> but, um, but uh, so, yeah, those were the things. Pretty much, and making, uh, and also, you know, big milestones for humans, you know, in, in history. So it was how well it told its time, what it, um, you know, what it told, and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the beauty of it. And so we ended up photographing about 4,000 buttons for the book, and then finally what made the book was about 1,500. Hmm. So. What, what's, the, what's the name for the, you know, button enthusiast community. So like philatelist yeah. for stamp, you know, what would it be for buttons? Let's create it right here, right now. Yeah. yeah. Buttonist. How about that? The button. 
Well, well, <laughs> the word genealogist has been thrown around in past times, but it never got adopted very much. <laughs> well, we're, we're trendsetters here, so we'll make that happen. <laughs> well, another... well, if we call it button, oh, if we call it button, then the other button collectors will get confused. That's you know, and angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whitehead and Hope called it a pinback button. That was their term. So, uh, you know, we I try to stick close to the, uh, the original definition. Fair enough. Well, one feature that I love about the book that's in addition to you know those fifteen hundred buttons and then sort of reproductions of them that you find there. You have these wonderful black and white photographs of people wearing buttons and some of the buttons featured in the book itself. And I think, you know, one of the most powerful images is the uh, photograph of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, there at the March in Washington in August 1963 in the midst of delivering um, his I Have a Dream speech. But he's got a button on on, on his lapel um, for for the march on Washington, the same one that's featured in the book. And I think it does a really good job of showing the way in which, like these, you know, these small objects can connect us to these significant moments in history. But how did you guys find some of these photographs and and, and source them? Yeah, I mean uh, that was that was kind of my one of my projects was. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I thought it was important to have people actually wearing these things, or you know, to put them in context, like human context. But um, you know, that one's so iconic, you know. And actually, when I was doing research for that button, or you know, that one obviously needed to make it. Um, uh, I found a lot of pictures of people at that day wearing buttons too in um, I think the Library of Congress mm -hmm. uh, images. And um, so, yeah, you know, Betty has all this stuff, too. So there are definitely moments, like, I knew, like, I, once I found that Cesar Chavez wearing that one uh, anti-Chiquita button, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that one's got to make it, and so does the button, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, there was, you know, the I Love Ring, the girl with the, at the Beatles concert in mm -hmm. Indianapolis, and she's got the I Love Ringo. Those are expression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, kind of looking for, uh, I guess, big moments, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, that really t kind of, again, like, told the story. But, um, like, the Library of Congress was a big one, mm -hmm. and then um, uh, Getty was a big one, too. You, you could do, like, searches. And then I, would, I went in really, I went into a rabbit hole with this. I have so many pictures that didn't make the book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just even typing in button. And, like, New York Library has a lot of uh, images, too. So, yeah, just really, like, um, so I'd either search, well, I'd always search button and pick mm -hmm. tech button. And then I'd also search, like, events. So if I knew I wanted to have, like, you know, a, a convention, a Democratic National Convention or something like that, just look up, look up for that there. Where are we in the? Oh, sorry. Where are we in the in the life cycle of of how how um, uh, ubiquitous or popular buttons are? Is it something like you know vinyl or cassettes where they're coming back, or they've just always been they've always been popular? Yeah, I, um, I don't know. I think that they're they used to be given out at campaign headquarters, and now they're more fundraising. Yeah. You know, like a you, you buy them. 
So um, I think there's they're a little bit less. And I think also, and I don't know if what you think about this from a historical perspective, Ted, but like mm-hmm. the grassroots stuff is, is more likely more likely for people to wear them now if it has some, you know, less, yeah, because you want to say something a little different about yourself in a way. And, you, you know, it definitely sparks like enthusiasm. But do you think like historically, Ted, like the grassroots kind of notion was... It probably wasn't like it what it is today. You know, like if yeah. people were like the gold to silver, where they're like, Oh gosh, I gotta wear this like gold to silver button. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there for us there are windows, you know, in the past and on to history, but during the moment they're being used, they're what you call identifiers, it's something that someone can actually stand behind. And if you wanna get a thought out there you know, buttons have been great at doing it since 1896. Uh, I guess there have been some cycles up and down. They probably, you know, cooled off, but then World War One came along and patriotism and, uh, you know, again, then they might have cooled off, but then the Depression came along and there were a lot of social welfare. And so it kind of goes up and down. Uh, you may not see as many today, but I know one person who on his own has made 500 2020 presidential campaign button, 500, hmm. not 500, 500 different designs. Oh, wow. Because with today's technology, uh, you don't have to make 5,000 or even 500. You know, you can make 10. <laughs> uh, it's changed the world of button making, uh, which Kristen understands modernly more than I do. But, you know, millions and millions of buttons are being made, even if you've not seen them as much as one once used to. We, our attention is diverted too many different ways nowadays. But believe me, the buttons are out there. Well, this is like fascinating, and I feel like I could talk for hours and hours with the two of you because there's a lot of overlapping interests here. I will have like one final question before we wrap up, just really quickly. So, there's 1,500 buttons represented in the book, and you, you, you know, you there were thousands that you chose from more, uh, or that you were deliberating over to limit it to that 1500. Um, but look, you know, looking at your own collections, are there any like white whales out there, a, a kind of mythical button that you've either heard about and never seen, or have always really wanted to add to your collection? And if so, like, what would that, that, that white whale button be? Well, hmm. <laughs> I've seen some artwork, uh, for, but you know, printed pieces of paper that, uh, were intended to be buttons, and they probably are, but I've never seen the buttons. I mean, over the years, from button manufacturers, there have been these little small hordes of small pieces of paper that came from a larger sheet, you know, that presumably the rest of the sheet became the buttons, mm-hmm. but there were so few of them, they, they're, they don't exist in a known form except in this pre-production kind of form. So I got a whole long list of things oh. I think could be out there that I've never seen. And it, that's why buttons are so great. There's only, you know, I've done it since I was 17 years old and then 77. So yeah, they're always new ones and it makes it a great hobby for any price level. All you have to do is have the interest in, in looking back or, you know, seeing how the world once viewed itself. Kristen? Any? Yeah. I, um, I mean, right now, uh, I, 
I, it's not a white whale, but it, there are some really beautiful suffrage buttons, and we don't have these. Uh, they're kind of Art Nouveau-y with a kind of a woven pattern. Hmm. I don't know if it's Art Nouveau or Roy Crofty or whatever, but it's um, uh, those kind of both, but they're purple and green, and I, I just love them. I think they're really beautiful. And uh, we don't have, we have other suffrage buttons, but we don't have uh, that one in particular, but... Um, yeah, other than that, I, I just, I feel like with the button museum, cause we have over 40,000 buttons in the button museum, like mm. we're so backed up, like cat, cat, um, like archiving them all that I'm, uh, right now I'm kind of taking a little bit of a hiatus, but if I, if I, and you know, there's so many that Ted has had in, in his collectible pinback buttons that I'd love to have, but, mm. um, you know, you know, Ted's seen way more buttons than I have, or at least, you know, of these, historically significant buttons. So um, for him to have a, cu- a couple that, you know, are his white whales is is kind of a big deal. <laughs> but for me to have some, it's like, they're just ones that are actually maybe a little more common, you know, that we would like to be able to afford for the button museum, but we, we aren't right now. So. And am I correct yeah. in understanding that the button museum is currently closed to the public, given the, the moment that we're in? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, um, it's just online right now at buttonmuseum.org. But the museum has, online, has about 8,000 buttons up there. So it's, it's a pretty big amount. It'll take, it'll take some time to go through it. Well, we invite our listeners to go and and check out the the Button Museum online, um, to perhaps design and have made some buttons of their own through, uh, Busy Beaver Button Company. Um, and of course, if you're in the collector's market to, to go to Hake's auction, uh, but the book is Button Power, um, by Kristen Carter and Ted Hake. Uh, thank you both for joining us, uh, today and then being part of this episode. We really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, stay thank safe you. and stay well. Thanks, Paul and Alex. You too. Thanks. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Paul. On past episodes of Pocket Guide to Hell, we've looked at Chicago's built environment, seeing how surviving structures on the south and west sides complicated myths about the Great Chicago Fire, or how surfaces of buildings in Little Village preserved community memory through the Brown Wall Project. And we've looked at how archives like the Vivian G. Harsh Collection at the Carter G. Woodson branch of the Chicago Public Library, or as we've just heard, the Button Museum at Busy Beaver Button Company, how these archives connect people to the past. In this part of the episode, though, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're looking under the city's built environment, the archive in the ground beneath, the stories told by the soil itself. And now to introduce our guest, I'll hand things off to Elliot. Nancy Clem is the founder and director of Social Ecologies, which creates durational projects that aim to build healthy habitat and interaction through direct engagement of place with those who dwell there. Nancy has been an uh, ecological systems designer, landscape, horticultural consultant, and agroecological grower for more than three decades. Her work has received extensive national and international media coverage, and she has lectured broadly in museum and university settings, as well as for countless community groups worldwide. She was the subject of the independent documentary, Weed Eater, and is the author of The Ground Rules, a manual to reconnect soil and soul, and a recently published book, The Soil Keepers, interviews with practitioners on the, grounds, uh, on the ground beneath our feet. Nancy uses, uh, currently splits her time between Little Village and 50 acres of land in the Driftless region of Northwest Illinois. 
where she cultivates and forages medicinal and edible plants, keeps bees in a fruit orchard, raises native quail, and grows uh, for a seed bank, which sounds uh, like a pretty good life to me. All right, Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I wanted to start off kind of with a, a broader framing question. Often when we hear about history, we, we think about reading texts in the archives or going to museums. But one of the things that interested us in learning about your work is your insistence that we uh, can also read the landscape, the soil and general ecology of a place to understand how the past is always with us, especially when it comes to things like pollution, which is uh, ever present here in Chicago. Can you tell us what is added or what changes when we add an ecological perspective to our understanding of Chicago's history? But I think that part of the issue is that we don't realize how much we impact a place or how place actually shapes us. And so by um, going into uh, creating an environmental history of a site or of a community, uh, we start understanding those uh, interrelationships. So I think, you know, in general, people see those as separate um, and uh, are looking at more the the built environment, which is part of the environmental history, but um, to see those things together is usually a piece that drops out, and it's not, uh, to put it together actually takes a bit of time, and we, and we pull from different sources to um, do that. So is, is this when, when your one of the organizations that you uh, founded, the Social Ecologies, is this kind of what you mean by that term, Social Ecologies? Well, <laughs> I mean, social ecology is based on the conviction that nearly all our present ecological problems originate in deep-seated social problems, mm. um, and these ecological problems cannot be understood, let alone solved, without a careful understanding of our existing society and the rationalities that dominate it and affect the landscape. So, you know, to me, it's like by going into and really understanding how we are changing um, the earth or the air or the water around us uh, to shape our vision of what we we like to see, how that also affects us. And so by pulling, you know, pulling this out, it, um, pulling out this history and layering it onto everything else, it kind of uh, lays a complexity that's not just about the ecology of a place, but also about the uh, social dimension and how we conceive of space. Yeah, and, and one, one of the things that I, you know, in, in, in reading a little bit more about your work, um, was thinking about the, uh, some of the foraging walks that you're doing and, uh, and specifically how we can kind of read the landscape to think about what, you know, minerals, nutrients, and et cetera, but also what pollution are present in the soil and how we can kind of use that kind of knowledge of, of reading plant life in order to understand sort of what's going on un underneath there. Is that something that, um, that you're currently still kind of actively doing here in Chicago? And, and, and if so, what's, the, what's been the response to those types of walks? Well, I mean, I've done urban foraging walks for, I don't know, 15, 18 years. So, um, and I'm not doing them so often now. I do more private sessions, or I do um, more focused uh, examination of a, of a vacant lot, for example. Um, so that aside, I do think that spontaneous vegetation, as well as cultivated vegetation, do say a lot about what's going on underfoot in terms of um, soil conditions, 
um, nutrient balances. Um, it can give hints to contamination as well. So it's an easy thing to read vegetation compared to being able to understand what's happening with soil, which seems to most people like a great mystery to them or something that's like entirely boring. So by looking at plants, they're like the top dressing, they're easier to read. Um, it is a really good starting point to start understanding uh, landscape. We go from spontaneous vegetation and cultivated vegetation and IDing what's there and seeing what condition it's in and looking at surface of soil and then we eventually do some digging. Um, so yeah. what are some plants that one might encounter in a vacant lot, say in a neighborhood like Little Village? And then how would you sort of interpret them or, or what would they tell us then about the history of, of that community? Yeah, well, uh, I really didn't answer the other part of that question, the <laughs> earlier question, and that was, um, I think people do accept looking uh, really closely at a place if mm. they can, uh, and getting curious about it, it's a matter of slowing them down or talking about what they can find and the slowing down um, what they can find. But like you know, in a you know in a re recently disturbed landscape, you're going to find usually the same players, um, and it's almost you you find the same uh, players across many parts of the of the globe uh, within reason. There's a lot of our pioneering species or first uh, successional species, the ones that are really good at um, grabbing hold of disturbed soil or imbalanced nutrients or ones that are able to take up a huge amount of um, toxic uh, metals are, are, the, are the same species we've had spread all over the globe. So it's like dandelion, burdock, um, different plants in the crest family from penny crest and um, I mean, all sorts of different cresses, and then and then chickweed and uh, mugwort and you know round ivy. I mean, it's just there's probably a good um, yellow dock. There's probably a good 20 or so that I'll find no matter where I go on disturbed land. Mm -hmm. And then there's something regional to maybe really alkaline soils or really acidic soils or really dry soils or really wet soils. There'll be some variation, and um, but uh, it's kind of amazing what you—it's you, <laughs> kind of amazing to travel the globe and see a lot of the same uh, plants uh, coming up in a recently disturbed site. Well, yeah, I also wanted to, like, there's something particular about uh, Chicago soil composition, right? It's, like, heavily clay, heavily alkaline, but, like, you know, it used to be part of um, uh, the greater sea, uh, greater lake bed, as far as I understand. Does that does that kind of, like, help trap some of these pollutants in a, in a way that more porous soil might not? Is there something about Chicago that makes it sort of extra, uh, extra able to hold on to pollution? Well, I think... Uh, I would say no. Okay. There's nothing extra special about Chicago about holding on to pollution other than, um, no, but we, you know, generate a fair amount of it as being an older city and, and being a large city. But um, when I look at soils, I, I don't think about um, the old lake bed unless I'm really uh, close to the, um, the old shoreline. Mostly I'm looking at the fact that 
uh, were on dolomite, which is a kind of limestone, and how that mother uh, material actually informs um, soils. But I also think that in most of the places that I dig, the city is old enough that it's really hard to get to more indigenous soils a place. You're mostly dealing with um, highly engineered soils or soils have been brought in from, uh, you know, <laughs> different places. And so it's, it's, it's um, pretty varied um, from place to place given the history of the site. So there, if there's been multiple building projects on a site, we're going to find that soil being very different than if it's, you know, it's never been built on before. Um, so to, to characterize indigenous soils, I think it's usually informed by um, mother material being uh, limestone, and they're actually fairly neutral. Our indigenous soils are usually um, around 7 pH. And then on our more industrial properties, um, the pH goes up because of uh, building debris, uh, contaminants or, or just drop in organic or organisms. There's, with less organic matter, you're going to have a more alkaline soil. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. the microbes bring it down. And in terms of clay, we're pretty balanced with clay. We're not heavily clay either. It's just that we tend to strip or destroy our topsoil layer, our organic layer, um, when we when we do what we do with it. So we're always... Uh, um, taking it away or compacting it and destroying it. Um, if uh, if we just had it, the indigenous soil is going to be pretty well balanced. I mean, we are the heartland for a reason, yeah. and um, it's it's rich growing grounds. And there, you know, historically there's been huge populations of people in this area um, before settlement because of the. Um, the water and the woodlands and the um, and the grasslands have really produced a, a great food forest, hunting, fishing, and growing. Yeah, I wanted to return back to that idea that you were talking about earlier about um, if you kind of getting trying to get people to to slow down and, and 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 pay attention to what's already there and all the different you know kind of signs that that gives us about you know what's going on both in the built environment and, and, and underneath the built environment and around the built environment. How, how you have been, um, you know, sort of in, involved in uh, educational projects in a variety of different ways. Like how um, easy or hard is it to kind of get that, 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 that idea uh, across to people that you're working with? Do you find that people um, uh, just kind of only need a little bit of prodding or that you need to kind of like scream into the, you know, into the void a little bit to try and get people to slow down and just pay attention to, to, to those types of signs and symptoms? Well, on a policy level, you have to scream into a void. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> on, a community, on a community level, most people are really interested. They know a lot about their neighborhood. Um, and when we do, when we reconstruct a, like the environmental history of a site, we're not just testing soil and sending it out to a lab. We're doing a lot of qualitative tests that can be accessed with um, human senses. And so everything from kids to elderly can get involved and are really interested in it because it is, it's almost like um, it's really sensory and it's from direct uh, observation. Um, but the other thing 
that we do that really involves people is that we do oral histories hmm. of a place, and that oral history really validates people's experience or, or um, you know, memory around around place. And so we engage story, we engage the site uh, sensorily, and then um, we do lab work and then uh, microscopy work. And then we also go into documents. So we do look at uh, tax documents, expired documents, and old photographs and uh, newspapers and things like that to really get a sense of what could be impacting the site from not necessarily directly what happened on the site, but maybe um, in close proximity. So a lot of our, uh, the landscape re re reading that we do is very sensorial and observation-based. Um, and then with um, kind of a broader environmental history, we could take uh, a while to do that. We usually go back as far as we can, usually 100 years if we can, to really um, look at what has impacted that site over time. Because it, it will show up in the soil. <laughs> um, in terms of health of the soil, uh, functionality of the soil, composition of the soil, um, uh, nutrient and, you know, toxic levels in the soil. So, Nancy, would you be able to give us a sort of specific example of this work and kind of talk us through some of these um, steps? I mean, I'm really interested in these sort of qualitative tests that you just mentioned, which, you know, are accessible to both younger and older community members and kind of like what sort of senses are, are being activated by them. Uh, I'm interested due to my own background in sort of oral history work and then what you're learning through that. So can you take us to a particular spot in Chicago where you've done some of this work and kind of talk us through what you've learned um, through interacting with community members, but also the place itself? Well, in some cases I've done it um, where people haven't been necessarily as involved. Um, and so recently we did a pairing for the um, um, Architecture Biennale last year, and uh, we did it between the Graham Foundation and the um, Madeleineur House, which is where mm -hmm. the Graham Foundation is housed in in, uh, in the north side. And then we did it with the Raber House, um, that's owned by Sweetwater Foundation in uh, Englewood. And so, by looking at those um, two. Um, in both cases, those EDs were um, directly interested in what we were doing, so we kind of just went out with a, a few a few folks and looked at those. And so what we do is um, we kind of have the same piece that we do qualitatively on site is uh, we do an observation of the entire site and then what's around it. Um, just with our bodies, like what are we noticing, What's what are current uses, um, what are we seeing in terms of uh, vegetation, built structures, um, activities, and make as many notes as possible around that. We go into spontaneous vegetation on site and look at surface of soils through a site, and we determine where we're going to dig. And when we get into that, that's when we start honing in on more other senses besides just uh, visual observation. So uh, we'll dig, and as soon as we set our shovel to the soil, we'll have a sense of how much that soil yields to um, general pressure of a soil. So 
will um, dig a hole, usually at about six to eight inches, um, which is the highest, uh, kind of ha will have the most biological activity. It's the, the largest growing zone of a soils in the first six to eight inches. Um, and then um, if we, what is the resistance to it? How easy it is, is it to dig? How does the soil cleave or break? Um, and then we start looking at color and texture, uh, aggregate size, um, and we use things like our fingers and loops, um, handheld devices, um, and we use a Munsell color chart. Uh, we'll smell the soil, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, uh, and do particular smells reveal particular things? I'm just curious. Sure, sure. You mm -hmm. can, I mean, you can smell minerals. Okay. You can smell minerals. You can smell potassium, and you can smell iron. Mm -hmm. um, those are pretty easy. You could smell if um, someone had been working on their car there. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. You can smell if it feels really smells really alive and fresh, or if something smells pretty neutral and dead, like mm -hmm. you can't detect any smell. Um, and then, uh, and then we'll do a collection of that. So we'll, we'll do some photography. We'll measure. Um, soil, maybe a soil profile um, there, and then we'll um, uh, we'll sample that soil, and we'll take part of it to look at a microscope and send to a lab. Um, and then the other part, we'll put in a, a jar, usually right on site, and the jar has um, uh, distilled water and some. Uh, a little bit of dish soap in it, and the dish soap helps open up uh, soil aggregate. It helps them, you know, just like it helps dislodge things from dishes. Um, it kind of opens up a soil and breaks um, biological bonds. And uh, it'll, and we shake it up, and then we let it settle, settle out, and that's another thing we're looking at in terms of uh, soil composition and um, stability of the soil? Is it something that's actively uh, in process or is it something more stable? And so a lot of these things talk more about how water moves through soil, how air moves through soil, um, and then the lab tests obviously start talking about chemistry. And we put that together with all the social history that we um, we use. We do a lot of mapping and photography. I've started using some film as part of that telling. And frankly, anybody gets really interested when there's the idea of places is, is like reintroduced to them. They thought it was just like, you know, that forgotten lot over there. And they realize, oh, this place is of significance or these events have happened here or these are traces of things we found here. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, have you most ever, people are really oh, interested, mm -hmm. and I. Uh, oh no! I was yeah. just going to ask a question about the the sort of intersection of the the soil and then the science behind it, and then these social histories, and do they generally complement one another, or do you ever come across, or have you come across examples where a community might have one sense of its past, but then when you kind of do this work, it it reveals something else, or perhaps something that's been obscured in, in some way? Oh, uh, 
uh, the latter. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of why I can't get into specifics on certain sites mm. because once you dig up some part of the past, um, a lot of people aren't ready to accept it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of the things that uh, we've done to place, whether they're historical acts, social acts, or they're environmental acts, um, stay with us in some mm. way. And there could be a lot of shame or blame uh, attached to it. So there's certain um, certain people have not uh, have told us not to share what we have found um, more broadly because it would uh, it would upset or kind of disrupt uh, perception. Hmm. That's uh, so. This, I think what's interesting. Go ahead, yeah, please. Please. <laughs> We've worked with people who who know that there's an issue. They love having all that stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of uncomfortable. And, yeah. But when we when we go at something that we think is going to be interesting, because we we suspect that there's some, there's something dirty in the closet. Um, there is, and that's usually when people um, don't want us to publish or share. That's so fascinating that there are people there who don't think that the ground is very polluted. <laughs> That's a, I want to know those people. Those are the boosters. Those are the city boosters. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna end it there. Um, uh, but I, I want to thank you so much. And I know that you're continuing to do stuff um, uh, sort of around the city, around the nation, and um, and also in Little Village. So I look forward to uh, kind of following you as you keep on doing that. And then quick plug: you also have a show here on uh, on on Lumpen Radio. Spontaneous vegetation. Uh, what, what? When does that air? Um, it airs on every other Sunday from five to six p.m. All right, and also mixed cloud and other. Yeah. All right. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, thank you again, Nancy, for uh, yeah, for, for for talking with us and uh, kind of adding to our sense of of, of what the historical record uh, can and should look like. Great. Thank you. And that's our show. I'd like to thank our guests, Kristen Carter, Ted Hake, and Nancy Clem. My colleague, Elliot Heilman. Happy to be here. Our producer, Annie Klein, and WLPN Radio. As for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history.